Good morning and welcome to another live stream edition of Ordinary Life. Ordinary Life is an educational program of St. Paul's United Methodist Church. And no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you're welcome to join us in this place. And you will be doubly welcome when we're able to gather together physically uh, for education and worship. So uh, I want to welcome the pajama people, and if you're in a different time zone, the wine and cheese people. And I want to thank those of you who found the donate button that Holly put on the email. I think it was Richard. Richard's Richard, put it, Richard yeah. Wingfield put on the email. Um, it never occurred to us during the shutdown period uh, that we had not made provision for those of you who wanted to make donations. These are very generous people, and um, Holly makes sure that the money and her committee make sure the money is used wisely and generously. And no you, planes. Huh? No planes. No airplanes. No airplanes. Uh, keep asking. I know. <laughs> but you have an announcement. Yes. Um, we have been talking about the auction that the art auction that will be going live tomorrow I believe and we'll send out an email as a reminder so that you guys can sign up and <laughs> and and bid on some art um, the art the money raised for the art auction is going to help with COVID relief for communities and people and people who are working to keep us well um, we're going to send as much as we can to people in need during this time so the art auction goes live when? Tomorrow. It's a two-day auction, and so you will get to bid on your piece that you want with whoever else is bidding on it for two days. So you got to watch it for two days. We'll send out full instructions. Will I know who my competition is? Yeah, I know. I don't know if you'll know specifically that I'm competing against you, but you'll know that someone is. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, I will say that... Um, if you have any pastoral needs or concerns, call me. Contact me through the website. Call the church's main number, 713-528-0527. Let us know what needs and concerns you have. If you're in a position to do so, remember the needs of the EAC. During this particular time, the needs are pretty significant, both here and at the Houston Food Bank. And um, we need all that we can get to help people who are really at the edges, which is what we're going to talk about today, Seeds for System Change. As you know, Holly and I have been following uh, both Karen Armstrong's Charter for Compassion and Jim Wallace's Reclaiming Jesus document to speak to some critical social needs of our time, and um, particularly racial justice, patriarchy, a number of other things. And Holly had the idea of inviting these two people to come and join us. I'm gonna introduce you to my colleague, Natalie Negretti, the Reverend Natalie Negretti. You know, I didn't know that you've been on the staff here as long as you have. Yes, 13 years. 13 years? I guess, I guess I need to turn, hello? <laughs> 13 years, Bill, 13 years. But longer than that, because in a way, we met you before you came here through the work in Bolivia and the church in Bolivia. Mm -hmm. And we, Sherry and I, have been in your parents' home when we went down to do that thing. And then uh, Nora Boots took us on a Gestapo trip through Bolivia and Peru. True. It True. was a hard trip. But anyway, um, 
Natalie has a passion for working with people on the edges and the bottom. She's done that all of her ministry, both in Cochabamba, Bolivia, where she's born, in Bolivia, and now here in Houston, where she is on the staff here at St. Paul's and in, in, uh, in charge of the Faye Esperanza community. Anything else you want to say about yourself that I left out? Not much. That's practically it. I've been uh, I born in Bolivia, in Cochabamba, Bolivia, and I grew up in... Uh, in places where my first teachers and doctors were the indigenous people and people who are economically poor. So I grew up in these places and I learned so much in these places. I learned first thing that we all are intertwined, that we depend on one another and each other. And, and actually, growing up in these places uh, embraced me and challenged me to follow my call, to agape love, and to infect others with hope. Hmm. Okay. Thank I love you. that. Infect others with hope. That's beautiful. Um, and I get the pleasure of introducing Dr. Cleve V. Tinsley IV. No one knows what the V stands for. Um, <laughs> but you guys have heard me talk about Cleve a lot, probably. Um, I'm so inspired by your mind. I love the work you do in the world, and I've gotten to take two classes with Cleve, one on mysticism and one on liberation theology, and have gotten a deeper understanding of just how he thinks and operates in the world. And I feel like you're a person I go to when I'm like, I want to know, I want to know what's really going on here. <laughs> you're deeply honest and deeply passionate and brilliant. So um, involved with Project Curate and probably about a million other things, but I'll let you fill in a little bit of those gaps, but I'm glad you're here. Yeah, well, thank First, I'm honored to be here again with you. Um, I think this is my second time with you here yeah. in Ordinary Life, yeah. and it's a pleasure to be with you here, Bill, and you as well, Natalie. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you, you summed it. Some of my community engagement work is through Project Curate, which is a coalition in a um, what you would call an eclectic kind of group of people that have come together who are committed to justice in certain ways. Yeah, yeah. And I'm also am an ordained minister as well as a scholar of religion and race and something I call black studies. Uh, but yeah, it's just trying to figure out what it means to move through the world with integrity. Yeah. yeah. Well, you inspire a lot of people. So I'm glad you're here. Nice to be good to be here. Well, yeah. the specific reason that Holly and I wanted to invite both of you here is to talk about your perspective on the ways that the COVID-19 virus is affecting people at the bottom, people of color, people Hispanic and black. I know you work with a lot of both documented and undocumented people. And uh, we just want to hear what your perspective was and, and also, um, advice and suggestions for how to fix the system. Right. We're just going to work mm. that out in 45 minutes. Okay. So Josh and I were, you you know Josh, my husband is Josh, and you of course know Josh, but um, we were discussing, you know, over the course of this, these last couple months, how um, both in Georgia and in New Orleans, and it's looking like that's, poss that's coming to fruition here, that about 80% of the people affected and um, most strongly affected in those two cities or those two places were black and mostly poor. And we were, you know, it exposes a lot of the issues in our system mm -hmm. about healthcare and food. And there's a lot of factors at work in those numbers that are 80%. So I think New Orleans has like a 30% black population, but 78% of the people affected were 
are are black and um, I think that what, what that made me realize is that in Texas we have we, we sometimes think that diversity equals equality but we're learning through our the, the fractures in our system that our diversity in Houston doesn't equal de equality mm. and what do you think that this kind of how do you think this is being exposed both in Texas and just sort of on a uh, on a national level um, why aren't people being taken care of I yield you I, I think one of the bottom problems for our community, immigrant community, in undocumented is basically, for the undocumented is having no documents. Yeah. It's having no documents, we are considered no people. We are considered no persons. We don't count. We count for the market because many of us uh, are essential, essential workers. Yeah but we don't count to, to get any relief. Yeah. Uh, so this is being impacted and greater to our community. Uh, not many of the immigrants face deportation, but undocumented immigrants face deportation every day in their life. Yeah. So it is adding more. And what this pandemic brings is the, the problem of the system a system that serves the market and doesn't serve the people. So uh, what I have seen in these days, it, it is so tragic. Yeah. Uh, all, all these initiatives and ideas and where like the market is the first thing. We, we do not really think in the majority who doesn't really have the minimal things to live. We have this, the drive-through ideas, thinking that everybody have a car. Right. Many of our people don't, cannot have a car. Because of license and... And, and, um, and because they, they're low, low wages. Right, right. can't afford Our people yeah. pay taxes yeah. and don't get mm -hmm. any, any reward. Mm -hmm. Healthcare, mm -hmm. not even think about it. That's a, such a privilege. You think there's a, a bit of a fear of of pursuing healthcare if someone were to become sick because they're not sure how they're going to be received? Yeah, being, uh, being a nobody is, is mm -hmm. fearful. Mm. Being nobody is fearful. And I think that's the, the main problem in, in the undocumented community. Yeah. We are the nobodies. Yeah. So, and, and we see that everything around, that even the social services don't consider the those the nobodies. Yeah. So Natalie, is it? Are you saying by implication that if one of these undocumented people were to contract the virus, that they don't seek health care? No. I mean, they might. Some might see a little. They get discounted, by the way. I mean, if they work, they get the discount. But that doesn't mean that they can really get the health care. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There are some resources out there, very little. Yeah. And it, I mean, the bureaucracy yeah. is high. I mean, yeah. there are few resources and the bureaucracy is so high. Yeah. They are the first one who lost their jobs or to remain in jobs right. with low wages, no benefits. And high risk. Yeah. And high risk, yeah. I mean, high risk. Where do they live? Mm -hmm. In a small apartments, mm -hmm. two or three bedrooms, mm -hmm. seven or eight people, children and adults and elders. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is a, it is a, 
it, what this pandemic is bringing is that the reality of the system that cares for market and economy and not for life. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that has been become glaringly apparent in this is that if you're at the margins or the bottom and the school system shuts down, that's really, really hard for these children. School is not only uh, a safe place for many of these children, but it's maybe the only place they get food. Mm -hmm. And um, school closed down, they go online, and the marginalized people are the ones who have no access mm -hmm. to devices or to Wi-Fi or any of that. So they get left out, and uh, that further hurts the whole the whole population. Yeah. I've never understood our unwillingness to invest wholeheartedly in the education of all children. Yeah. I've just never understood that. For our community, the language is another thing. You know, yeah. many of the academic uh, homeworks uh, are in English, obviously. Yeah. And many of our people yeah. didn't have the, the privilege online. to go to yeah. school in their own towns. They are learning the language, mm -hmm. and they have limited resources and knowledge on technology. Mm -hmm. Now, this situation has bring and added another way to our community because now they don't. They have to to get a Wi-Fi, they have to have an internet. Mm -hmm. There is no such a free internet, friends. There, there is not. That that needs to be added to a budget that doesn't exist. Right. And that's that's real for our folks. Mm -hmm. What are you seeing, Cleve? What are some of the, what do you think some of the exposure, exposure of our sort of systems are happening, in your opinion? So, I mean, same thing Natalia was saying. It just, I think these, this incident just really, uh, exacerbates problems that already existed along issues yeah. of racial disparity, right? Yeah. As it relates to access to health care, those who are part of black and brown communities are typically not believed when they say they go. It's harder for them to get tested. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, like Natalia says, the living condition in what they call, whether it's urban ghettos or settings where people are on top of each other, uh, they're overrepresented among essential workers, they're overrepresented among us without health insurance. Right. Um, they're overrepresented among folks who have this term out here around comorbidities, right? right? These issues that make that issues already exist worse for them. Mm -hmm. And so I just think uh, whether it's cities like Detroit, New Orleans, Atlanta, here in Houston, I forget the numbers here in Houston, but I think overall in America, 13% of the population is African-American, but we represent about 70% of the deaths right. relating from COVID. Yeah. And so all these issues are affected uh, locally as well. I mean, their rental assistance, for instance, persons are not be able to pay rent in the immigrant community in our community as well. And so I just think these issues just um, heighten the sort of vulnerability that folks are subject to in the system, mm -hmm. right? Now, I typically reframe, especially how most of us in these settings talk about it. We often talk about groups who are at the bottom or on the margins or those who are that way. And, and for me, I've never viewed uh, describing of people in that way because I consider myself among them, right? And so um, you're talking about people amongst who I live, right? And so so those of us who are more vulnerable to a structural system set up uh, in equity and neoliberal market politics or whatever, that tends to leave certain people out, those who have not had. Uh, it, these issues just bring more issues of inequality to bear yeah. and how inequity can just kind of continues to stifle and press down those who already have to fight through so much to try yeah. to climb. Yeah. When I, I have had the 
fortune, I think, of working when I was teaching, I taught actually about 20% of my students were undocumented. And um, I worked in a neighborhood where the closest grocery store was maybe two miles from, from the sort of center. I worked with Project Row Houses. One of the big things that we really tried to get, get to the neighborhood was just easy access to good food. And that's one of the comorbid issues I think that you're talking about is um, when you don't have access to good food that you can make, then your, your body is going to respond differently to a virus. And um, you know, I, PRH got um, that organic co-op on the corner of Dowling and Elgin. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, and which is wonderful, but it's it's is it enough for for an an entire community to have just kind of one place like that, right? And I mean, I think those things, these issues, that it, it's not so much that like um, somebody's doing something to get the virus more easily. It's that all of these other things compounded with. Um, Josh and I were discussing maybe not trusting the system, like not trusting that if I go, my needs will be met, right? Or if I, um, if I ask for help, not being believed, or not having the money or the papers to sort of um, to check myself in. And what does that mean? A lot of my students, when they had illnesses, they would just go to the emergency room, which racks up a huge, just for like a cold or a flu, right? Which racks up a huge bill. So, you know, that just not having access to something that can just take care of your needs like that limits your willingness, I think, to go towards it. Would you agree with that? So if we name specific communities here in Houston, whether it's Third Ward, it's an easy community for folks, but I'm talking about communities like Cashmere Gardens, Acres yeah. Homes. Yeah. Just talk about education, for instance. Right. Um, so you, you place these kids now in environments that are maybe not conducive for them. I mean, when are they going to have space to kind of like, one, have access to a computer? Right. So you see issues across the country where uh, black parents and immigrant parents are driving their kids somewhere where there's free Wi-Fi access in the parking lot, yeah. right? Yeah. So these are just some of the issues that these folks are right. facing. Then when they do get sick, they're scared to go to the hospital now because even if it is a cold or whatever, I'm scared of getting exposed to COVID, getting right? Yeah. Uh, and then, I mean, there's always been this issues around mothers giving birth in hospitals and how they have to fight, yeah. uh, especially mothers of color have to fight to get doctors to kind of care for them in general, right? Yeah. And so all these issues are just compounded by pandemic issues. And then so when uh, corporations and businesses open up, right, we're all fortunate. We're, we're privileged in this space. We're able to walk from home and kind of move around. But the truth of the matter is when businesses open up, the owners are not the one putting themselves at risk. Right. It's the essential workers. Why? Because if they don't come, they get fired That's and right. lose employment. Yeah. Meanwhile, the one who says we got to get back to work is safe in a space, doesn't have to show up, can send his own employee That's out right. there to can do manage that. manage from afar. Right, you know? Yeah. And so these yeah. issues uh, we see function in our community all the time. Yeah, and I'm sure the same thing will tell you as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, was, I, I have a, um, a man that I'm acquainted with owns a small landscaping business, and he has four kids. Um, so a total of six people in his family. They have two phones between their family. He uses his phone for business, and the children who are in school use the mother's phone for their schoolwork. One phone, no cell, I'm sorry, no Wi-Fi, all on roaming, trying to get schoolwork done on a small screen. I was thinking about, you know, I, I, y'all know I have three kids. They're in elementary school. Um, we have, one of them is using one of my devices, my computer, and they have an iPad that they share. So they each have a device. We have Wi-Fi. They have parents who are both educators. <laughs> and you know we can sort of be engaged. I think 
Josh and I represent the minority and it's still hard to be doing this kind of, you know, homeschooling and managing and getting it done and the teachers are being as heroic as they can possibly be. But I am just contrasting mine and Rodolfo's story because they're so vastly different and, and yet there are still challenges that are faced and I think for his family probably compounded. Do you, are you seeing some of that? And you were, you were mentioning, you know, going to parking lots to get Wi-Fi. There were these school buses traveling around to communities just parking with, with sort of roaming Wi-Fi. But you have to go to it, right? My kids don't have to leave the house. Yeah, I mean, what, did, what are you seeing with the sort of parents and kids, if you will, in the community? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a big issue. Mm-hmm. There are people is left out and excluded. Uh, there is Wi-Fi somewhere, some, mm-hmm. some places, mm-hmm. and people try to get there. Uh, people is trying to get Wi-Fi, and it's just impossible right now. And, and yeah, it's like one phone for all of it. Mm-hmm. We're speaking, these families, they have like four or five kids, different ages, mm-hmm. yep. you know? <laughs> Elementary, middle school, and high school. How do you do that? Yeah. How do you do that? That that is not even possible. Language limitations, Mm -hmm. they don't know the language. So I know one of the specific things that came up here is the need for rental assistance for people. And that's one of the things that that sparked this art auction that we're gonna have um, to, to help people who have lost jobs, they work tobacco restaurants or whatever, and, and they don't have any. They can't pay their rent. Will they get on the street? <laughs> it seems like it. Uh, people from our community is being already evicted. Mm. Right? They have get this notice like, you know, you're, you gotta pay. And they're paying more, right? Because they are evicted. They couldn't pay their rent. They were waiting for help didn't get the help when they were expecting. Now they have to pay more, and they have this eviction notice. They have to evacuate. So so what will happen to them? (laughs) What will happen to them is what, uh, yeah, they can get easily on the streets. And let's let's think about it. Our communities are already homeless people. Let, let, let's thinking about in this Can way. Can you say more about what you mean by that, your community? Uh, let's, we have family of about seven or nine people, four adults. The adults need to work to be able to pay the rent. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not just one of the family, right? right? If, they, if one of them doesn't work or doesn't have a job, how will they pay the rent? Right. That's considering homeless. Mm-hmm. I mean, you do have a place to live, but it is a small place. Many people, people have to work. Mm-hmm. That's why kids don't really, they just uh, are trying to graduate from high school to help families because the reality is hard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that, that's, that's a hard reality, but it is. So it is uh, the most, uh, governors and states have put 
stays on eviction. So what that means is yeah. the landlord can still evict you. They just can't take you to court to get you out yet, right, until the pandemic is over with. So they still didn't stop, stop their policy of saying, you need to pay my rent. If you're not, you're evicted. And as soon as we can go to court, you're out of here. And they can also still charge you late fees for that as well. So what you're seeing in a lot of these Rebus residents, the, the owners are still evicting folk, even though they can't enforce it right now. And what they're doing is adding fees to it as well. And all of this is legal, by the way. Okay. And all they've, all they've done is just put stays on it. So as soon as pandemic crisis is enough per state or whatever, they still can go to court and have them maybe evicted later on. They just can't evict it right now. Yeah. So you can, they, they can collect all, they can rack up all the fees and act as if, and then when the day comes, okay, now you're out and we're going to court. Yeah, because yeah. typically what happens is you get an eviction notice, you go to court. Yep. The court usually gives you another two or three weeks right. or a month to pay it or whatever right there. I know it because I've been through it back in the day. But uh, now that process has changed, you evict you, you can't go to court yet. The judge is just saying, no, we're not going to see this right now. You can't evict anybody. Uh, But three or four months, their payments are still due. Late charges are still being assessed. Mm -hmm. And so these families will never recover. And like Natalia was saying, like, for folks who live in three and four and five people in a place, they're already essentially homeless. We're also not considering uh, food for working class poor families, mm-hmm. feeding a family of seven when schooling is different now, right? Yeah. So the reason why you see these lines at these places collecting food is because formerly I had to worry about how to feed me and the other four adults. Now I got to feed the four adults and the 10 kids that are here, right? right? So now we have folks lining up trying to get food because uh, it's scarcity that yeah. exists now. Yeah. You even talk about healthy options. I mean, who can afford it? Can't go <laughs> right. to Whole Foods and buy food, right? right? So right. Uh, these are all like things that are just worsened by the pandemic yeah. and just brought more to light. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm a great believer in um, trying to do whatever I can to increase religious literacy. And I can cite numerous sources um, going all the way back to the Book of Joy, a series of interviews with Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama, Karen Armstrong's work on the Charter for Compassion, seventh generation from Native American people. I mean, just all sorts of things that say, if we educate people that we're one, that we're connected, that'll solve the problem. But that seems pretty hopeless. I mean, um, I do believe that if everybody could absorb what Thich Nhat Hanh teaches about we, we are one. This is the whole concept of inner being. Or what Jim Finley says, I'm not, I'm not you, but I'm not other than you either. Then we would ha- begin to have a society that enacted more compassionate laws and provided a, a sounder uh, safety net for all of our citizens. Why isn't that happening? Because it's in our everybody's best interest. I mean, three, four years from now, everybody's going to pay for this, not just mm-hmm. people of color. And not just the poor. Not just the poor. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just think the way society has been weighted, it is always going to be the case three or four years from now, some people will pay more than others, yes. right? Yeah. And I also think you can't, the problem with the, um, the interconnectedness and being the history of religious thought or, or religious striving or human striving is uh, we can't, allow the issue of cultural power, right? Those who are in power and those who have wanted to conquest and those who have tended to dominate other peoples. You can't disconnect uh, how we live in a society right now from the interests of folks who've had political and cultural power, right? And so like, 
uh, while we have this, that's the disconnect between theory and praxis, and when you and I used to talk about this all the time, is all of us can agree to a certain set of ideals and ideas about philosophically what's the right thing to do, right? But when we leave this place each day, we all have our own personal vested interests that we're going to protect no matter what. And my argument to folks is like, if I am a white person, if I were a white man, why would I want to give up anything I have? Mm-hmm. I'm just going to be frank <laughs> with you, right? Because the truth of the matter is, everything works for me in this world, right. right? So unless we're able to kind of like be willing to really question and dismantle the hierarchies, but also create critical spaces like you all do in ordinary life where folks are not just talking about it, but then also provided an on-ramp to really engage in uh, a type of deconstructive work in the world, right? Then it's not going to change. We talk about this whole thing amongst us called fractals, these mm-hmm. microcosmic spaces where we're able to kind of work out what we think community might be, and then let the vision of that community expand as it can in our own circle of influences. Uh, but I think this this struggle, Bill, is 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 never ending. I mean, we've always had these ideas of how we should live, yeah. but there's just been a disconnect on massively, uh, yeah, yeah, of how we should live and how going back to antiquity, right? Yeah, I think in in America and that's the context in which I live, so it's the one I can speak to, specifically even maybe the American South, is it's the lion's share of the work is up to white people to go, can I live into unity and diversity? Can I really live into dismantling? We were talking about, you know, let's say you have an investment portfolio that's worth, let's say, $10 million, and over the last couple months, you've um, lost $400,000 because of the market you kind of go, oof, that's a lot to lose in one small amount of time. But you still got $9 million and a half dollars left, right? If you have $20 and you lose that percentage, you have $15 left, you know? And, that, and so I think, you know, that, 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 that disparity is so real. And how can we walk out of here? I love that question. How can we walk out of here and think differently about that and actually do the work to go, I have, you know, I think about hoarding toilet paper, how this has become such a weird necessity over the last couple of months. And it's scarcity mindset, right? I might not have enough, so I need all that I can for myself. But then there are people who cannot even afford to hoard, who can't go spend all of their money on buying toilet paper. So we're leaving others without. And I, I'm, I'm so interested in that question, how do we actually peel apart these layers? I don't have an answer, but I do think it involves some of this. Like, how do we get creative? Well, about? so a couple of my interest to that is that I think it has a lot to do with awareness yeah. and with being able to talk to each other, yeah. to have conversations. I, as you know, I. You all might not know this, but I really uh, am on a campaign to try to persuade people to live without labels, because labels are traps. And one of the traps that the progressive liberal Christian is in in the United States today is saying, oh, Christianity's been hijacked by evangelical Christians and they've melded it with the political right. This is nothing new. Mm-hmm. I think that's what I hear Cleve saying. This has been going on for generations. Mm-hmm. Think about how the church, um, the, the white Protestant church colluded with slavery. Yep. And, and how the people who came uh, to the United States in the beginning had this manifest destiny that made it okay to kill Native Americans mm-hmm. or go back to the third century. I mean, we've had this problem for a long yeah. time. The dominator mentality. Yeah. Yeah. One of the great values of uh, 
the our communities, immigrant communities, in, in black and brown communities, is the importance of the family. Mm -hmm. We see each other as a family. That's it. That's what we are. And when this pandemic affects our whole family, right now people is not able to send money to their closest relatives, which affects them as well. Yeah. But if we just turn in this basic idea, we all are a family, we share. What we see in this pandemic as well is that we have turned to each other. Mm. We have turned to each other with the little we have. We just share it because we have that here. We are a family and we have that responsibility to care for one another. And if I have one bread, I can share this bread in pieces mm -hmm. so that my family mm -hmm. have it. So it is when I call our folks, like immediately I heard that, uh, you know, we need to stay home, this is gonna last. And I say, how are you doing? How can I help? Mm -hmm. And their immediate reaction is like, you know what? We have Maseca, we have all, we're, we will be fine. We will be fine. We, I mean, food, we'll have food. Mm -hmm. We will share. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that you and I talked about uh, on the phone this week, I was not aware, simply because I'm not aware of, of things, that um, people in these essential jobs who have lost their jobs are now no longer able to send money back to Bolivia or back to Mexico or back to some other place, which is what was keeping those families right. going. So it, it, what happens here affects what happens in a lot of other places. And that community ethic of care that she speaks of, of course it's like something that's more salient among uh, poor communities because it's, a, it's been a tactic of survival, right? Mm -hmm. If I don't share with others, they won't survive. Mm -hmm. But at the, on the other spectrum of that, right, you have during the pandemic era, uh, the owner of Amazon and now Whole Foods have made $30 billion yeah. over this period, last yeah. three months or so, right? Let's say that again. $30 billion. Uh, the owner of Amazon's and yeah. Whole Foods, right, has made that. Bezos, right? <laughs> and his response, unlike the community ethic about, oh, I've, I've received a lot more, his response is to cut now mm -hmm. uh, pay of those who are essential workers or like hazard pay or additional pay for them. So I made 30 billion, but I'm not gonna let these essential workers make any more. Right. Yeah. And what I'm saying to you is like, there's no way with the ethic, but a kind of capitalist society where those who quote unquote, who are on top, um, is really mostly about their own self-interest of these corporations of these entities. And you hear this kind of promulgated through all these folks. And so it becomes difficult that communitarian ethic amongst our communities has been a way of survival, especially when you've been part of the order, when you have been on this underside, right? When society of that, and, and unless we like can disconnect our desire and interest for community away from interests of power, we'll never really realize that. Yeah. But, it, and I hate to say it, there are ways in which, even though I'm engaged in the struggle every day because I'm one who believes you can't be a critic if you're not willing to be involved in the struggle. Right. I'll be in the struggle every day. But I'll be honest with you, I'm cynical as well. I don't. I know in my lifetime that order is never going to change, and I doubt in the next 300 years it will. Yeah. But it's our deal, our job, as the pragmatists would say, to move the world forward, generation by generation. Right. Mm -hmm. That's our yeah. our plight. But it, but the whole upheaval of this order, in my mind, 
won't come until symbolically speaking, right? Some reign of God might come, right? right? Otherwise, I mean, what interest really does a powerful person have to kind of subsist this? Because more than having a conversation, Bill, I mean, we can talk all day. We've had these conversations. Uh, How can you create more equity for folk, right? If I I know, for instance, um, I had this conversation with um, another dear friend of mine who just happens to be white. Um, You know, for instance, uh, if we have two, say, skilled laborers doing this, and your networks enables you to move and make more than this person. Why don't you leverage your white network in a way to allow this person to kind of, that's how you can make modicum of a change in the space that you exist in, right? But by and large, folks want to, I'm talking more about liberal white folks, want to have conversations. But the movement from conversation to really changing is where you see most of the challenges. And I'm just speaking from one who kind of sees it up front. Right. Right. There's there's an idea, this came up in a conversation with another woman I know um, on, of like micro reparations, mm. right? How can we invest in the businesses and um, like the small business owned by Rodolfo, right? Like how can you just keep investing in those little businesses? I'm not saying that that's the big grand answer, but how do we continue to be aware of who owns the businesses who else are they taking care of and um, supporting those so that they stay alive on some level right now, right? And it doesn't take that much imagination to me, right? So nope. just, if I'm, if I'm a rich business <laughs> yeah. owner in, yeah. like, in Houston, I got access to other rich white business owners. Right. I know communities of color business are point. Why don't I just put, you know, we're going to make sure they survive through this pandemic, Invest in this. right? Yeah. Large yeah. religious institutional structures, right? Yeah. A lot of churches have to close now, but others, believe it or not, are, are making more money during this pandemic, right? right? Yeah. Uh, why don't we say, look, why don't we put our funds together and like help some of the other? So the things are not that hard yeah. to do. The truth of the matter is, we talk about it, nobody wants to really what's do this push? kind of stuff. Like, what's the what's push? What's going to push into the action? And yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah. w- one of the emphases that Holly and I have been making um, is the importance of getting adults to come to the table. Because so often we act like children, like selfish yeah. brats, yeah. instead of like mature adults. Yeah. And uh, we've been pushing a book um, <laughs> called When the Disciple Arrives. Yeah. And When the Disciple Arrives is a book by uh, an Irish Catholic writer who's very prolific. Yarmut Omiraku. Mm-hmm. See, Did I, get it? I was hoping you would do that. <laughs> and. Um, one of the brilliant insights in this book is that he says the, the, the phrase kingdom of God, which doesn't appear in the New Testament in the way that we think it does because Jesus didn't speak Greek. Uh, he says the better translation for what Jesus had in mind was community of empowerment. And the only thing that's not equal in the community of empowerment is that the neediest people get in first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Those who are those who are poor, those who are the outcasts, those who are the quote unclean, the sinners, whatever, they the, and they get it in, in the in the in the biblical story. So that I love your metaphor of the family because that's what a community of empowerment can be. Mm-hmm. 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 About 20 years ago, I was in Bolivia. I haven't been back since, which I would love to go back, but I. Um, I was in Cochabamba with the St. Paul's relationship there. And um, I remember noticing that structure of community, right? Um, I remember these two guys, like we needed a crowbar. And they went and they got a piece of rebar and they made it and, and like brought it back to us. Like, here's your crowbar. 
um, there was something else, a level, and they made a level out of um, a clear piece of pipe with water in it so that we could see when, when something was level. You know, so there was creativity. There was also community. Um, oh, let me go ask these five people if they can help us out with these materials. I also got really sick in Bolivia. And, and, and some might say, well, that, I never want to go back again. I would go back to Bolivia any day to be cared for because I was so cared for. And what I noticed was that um, that sort of togetherness of community, the reliance upon each other was very strong where I was. And you spoke to that a little bit in the community in which you maybe live and work. And I, the rhetoric here, and, and you know we're seeing a lot of states' rights stuff come up, right? Like states have the right to open if they want to write. There hasn't been a consistent collective message here there's something I think is really beautiful about individualism. It does promote creativity. On the other hand, it can be really damaging because we're only thinking about what's in my best interest or what, what's in this best, the best interest of these folks who agree with me. So what do you guys think is the sort of imaginative process of, of bringing the wisdom of the community into a place like America, which is so individualistic? <laughs> And not letting go of that entirely. We need our autonomy to a degree, but how do we also bring in the wisdom? And, of and, and I would add to the mix, uh, how do you address the schizophrenic spirituality that's in this country? Shane Claiborne tweeted the other day um, a picture of a guy who was carrying a sign that said, God will protect me from the virus. <laughs> and he was carrying going. a gun. I mean, now how do those two things right. go together? Yeah. You know? In America, they do. <laughs> I grew up in a country that we have a long history in resistance of capitalism. Mm. We, we just are, these are generations and generations working against an idea that uh, creates individualism. Mm -hmm. Ethic of care is a basic for us. Mm. We never diminish the power of ethic of care. Mm -hmm. I think it brings lots of powers. It brings out our humanity. It makes us more human. It makes us uh, see life in a different way. It makes us feel uh, life in a different way, way. And it helps us to have a different vision mm -hmm. of what the present and the future can look like. Yeah. It, it is not an easy path because not all of us are willing to do it, but as you have said, it's in our best interest to, to promote something that doesn't seem that is working right. right. Because the market is telling you that, you know, that's not gonna work. Look how many years, look back in history. You know, we are part of the history. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We make the history. Yeah. And I, I particularly think that the ethic of care is a seed that we need to keep planting and planting and planting as often as we can, mm -hmm. not just by a speech in, in, in actions, but actually being willing to listen to those voices out there that are speaking, but we don't listen because we close our 
ears, our minds are in the market and individualism mm -hmm. that we get to a point that we cannot even dream in that possibility to be a, a family very diverse and beautiful. Yeah. We don't think that there is possible of being a family who celebrates life and diversity and still be a family. That's very utopic. Mm. I have asked so many times to people uh, about that and they're like, oh, keep dreaming. Mm. I say, I will keep dreaming. Yeah. I will not give up dreaming. You know, Joanna Macy says in her book, Active Hope, that there are three stories that are going on. One is business as usual. The second is things are going to hell in a handbasket. And the other is there's a possibility of a new future. It said that not one of those stories is true or better than the other. Well, we argue about that. <laughs> we argue about I think that. She way. said, but they're all going on. Yeah. And you, what you have a choice is which story you want to be part of. So uh, one of um, your favorite authors, James Baldwin, was quoted in one of your other favorite authors, Fred Moden's book, okay. which I was oh, yeah. just reading the other night. Um, I'm going to get it wrong, but um, Baldwin said something to the degree of he was, he was noticing the beauty of blackness in his community of sitting around the table and dreaming and um, being in uh, imagination about what their life their futures could look like. And he grew up, of course, he came up in a different era than we are, um, uh, maybe closer to years. <laughs> and he, but he says, what will we be when we don't have the struggle? Do you, does that sound familiar to you? What, we what will we, we be when we don't have the struggle? And, and I, Josh and I were talking about hope the other day and like what keeps hope alive. And Josh is a really, um, I know I talk about him a lot, <laughs> is a really hopeful, a really optimistic person who's also very realistic. And he said, you know, hope belongs to the people who are dispossessed. Hope belongs to people who haven't had because they have the greatest idea of what it can be. And I wonder, you, you talk about you talk about hope and, you, and you've said also this, I, I know when you do your sort of, I would say, spiritual activism, it's in community. It's not about your well-being. It's about the community. So, so I, I think where I, I think one is able, so there's a way in which I beat back against a kind of um, individualist kind of uh, survival to fit this ethic that really arose with the age of empire and other stuff. Mm -hmm. In my instance, I do believe in autonomy and creativity and, mm -hmm. and a kind of radical expressiveness, but that only comes in a broader structure of care. I mean, I mean by that is um, the reason why some people are surviving and thriving, and so we might say is because of their individual grit, right? And folks, so people use that to blame others when they're just not pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps. Well, no, the, the, the thing is they don't have equity equity of opportunity, mm -hmm. right? And so if folks have equity of opportunity, then you see their radical type of creativity come through. We've talked about this informal graduate studies or whatever, there's so much that folks of color have to fight through before they even can get to their own distinctive voice or expression, mm -hmm. right? And so when you have to beat through so much ideological, structural type of stuff before you can even, you don't even know who you are first, yeah. right? And so where a community ethic of care might come into place against the kind of uh, this regime of sort of autonomy and individual survival of the fittest, well, it's easy to say survival of the fittest if I'm on, if I'm on top of the pecking order, right? Because then I'm looking down on everybody, saying, look, y'all just make y'all way up. I'm the fittest. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think what happens is when you create, at least what we found out in small spaces, when we've created room 
for there to be equity of opportunity, right? To move one of the barriers, say one of my LGBTQ black women friends, if we can remove one barrier to where their expression doesn't have to fight through that and then express, what we see is something that I could never do, right? right? And so what I would say in a society, if we were really concerned about true creative, redemptive expression of everybody, then we'd strike, fight and struggle to like help uh, create a society where, that, where it's more just, right? Yeah. Uh, but again, we're all caught into these identitarian politics in, in particular ways because we're still trying to find our own fit in it, right? If I don't compare or measure up to this group, then where do I fit? Right? right? And whenever we have these struggles, these things are going to happen along gender, sex, or whatever. And so we just, I just think those of us who are concerned and always will be in this struggle just have to recognize it's a long game, right? It's complex. It's not going to be neat. Yeah. Um, yeah. But Baldwin and I, likewise, are saying, listen, he, he used the best of this prophetic tradition, even though he left Pentecostal church. He grew up in, in Harlem in the Renaissance era in the 1920s. What he saw is the beauty and also the sadness of black existence in Harlem at that time, right? And he said, look, both the preacher and the pimp were similar to me. They had the same lines, right? Mm. I left this country because in Paris, I was able to negotiate a bit. It wasn't perfect, but it was a little bit better, right? And so I think what Baldwin and other folk were able to do is reckon, realize their own. Another thing about Baldwin that on the privileged side of it is he, at 12 years old, he met mentors and was reading right. Hemingway and all these other folks, yeah. right? I'm like, man, I hate you. I wish I was doing that. You know what I mean? I but so what I'm saying is even in these windows, right, we might have these windows of access where we yeah. can do that. But if everybody had sort of equity of opportunity, yeah. um, then we'll see some of our most creative expression That's we've right. ever had. Creativity is like the child of, of I, want, I don't want to say freedom, but it's the child of equity, right? Yeah. And yeah. people are really creative even when there isn't equity, too. We know, you know, we yeah. see that, that sometimes um, those who might be considered historically marginalized are some of the most creative in how they in community living and the ethic of care. Um, in cosmology, which is my sort of uh, area, <laughs> then we, 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 you speak of the, the, the whole universe as a, as a singularity, right? It's, it's a single moving, breathing, expanding thing. But within that universe is all kinds of diverse expressions of itself. Right, and, and th those two are in symbiotic relationship all the time. It's just the natural way of the war, of the way the cosmos is. It's just the way it is. And I've definitely heard you know, philosophers and social critics and theologians say, humans seem to resist that. Humans seem to resist this, the way of nature, which, which actually Darwin didn't say survival of the fittest. His, the, the critics or the people who took on social evolution took on the phrase survival of the fittest. And what is it, you know, so we became this, we've become this competitive scarcity thinking species that is working against nature. The, the phrase that I really like is autonomous and embedded. So each of us have our own particular ways of being in the world. I'm an artist, you're a thinker, you're also creative, you're a, you're a community caregiver, you're a theologian and a, magic trick <laughs> lover, you know, and we're also embedded, whether, another Baldwin, whether we like it or not, we are married. We are in this, and that's never gonna change. So I'm, I'm really interested both theologically and socially in thinking, how do we make that evident? You know, the evidence of that embeddedness. And I think both of you are doing that work in the world. And 
I, I remember something Jim Bankston, former senior minister here, said one time at a Breaking of Silence dinner. He said, the church has lost its opportunity to be prophetic. Mm -hmm. Now, he was talking about one particular issue. And, and the struggle now for the church is to see whether we can remain relevant. And I think that's true. That how, how can, and I was thinking the other day, why is it that when I mention the name Jesus, so many people go, ooh, <laughs> you know? This is not hopeful. <laughs> this is not a helpful thing to have happen. I do think that LBGTQ plus community has a lot to offer us as a model of a group of people who are patient and persistent and have won some significant battles. In some ways, yes. And and I was just writing about this that and there's also there's only I think thirty-five out of hundred and ninety-seven countries who have passed um, equitable marriage laws. So we've got a long way to go. Mm -hmm. There are people still being persecuted on that level too, you know. And even if the laws exist, you know, sometimes I think that the laws that we create are the best of ourselves. Like it's like a, it's a great, you know, so our laws support equity, but we're not living into that, you know? It's just, anyways. So could each of you speak to, um, is there anything that you know of right now that's happening during this pandemic that is actually meet, working to meet the needs. It could be an organization, it could be an individual, it could be an uh, offshoot of a church that is working to meet the needs of people who we may not be considering in the sort of mainstream. I have been reflecting on that, mm. trying to make the, the list. Uh, I find myself isolated. Mm. Um, it was hard to come out come out with a list um, because it is assisting and it is so much bureaucracy and, and the system uh, please the economy. Uh, so I, I have to confess that I, I, it's been hard for me to think in particular programs or places that I know that I have experienced that help for uh, the the particular vulnerable community as the undocumented forensics. Uh, I have to say that that St. Paul's as a, a part of the general churches always doing their best to, to be radical uh, community that shares love and, and that is the family I know well. I know each individual person and, and, and part of the church, all their members. And I, I if I, when I think in an organization or program, I, I think in St. Paul's because that's what I know and have experience. Uh, as a body, we try to do our best to immediately help the people in life and that takes a village because you gotta fight with assisting. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, uh, thinking in programs, organizations is, is being hard for me, but I, I, I believe in what, what St. Paul's community as a community is doing. Mm -hmm. So for me, that's an easy question. Um, 
two organizations. I'm, uh, one I'm affiliated with, a group of organizers and activists who lead an organization called BLM HTX, right now have a campaign going on for COVID relief. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a coalition campaign with several churches, Chapelwood Church. I think St. Paul's was a part of our, our previous one. Mm-hmm. But they have a campaign going on right now. You can go to that website, blmhtx.org, and you'll see how to give. Another campaign through Project Curate, we're directly helping uh, immigrant community in West Houston who have the most cases that have been tested so far. Uh, you can go to projectcurate.org there. And these are direct relief efforts intended to meet uh, audiences that don't typically get funded by. We applied for something through a Houston Foundation or something. Yeah, Seemed like Houston we sh- Yeah, Houston Endowment. And so uh, those are things that are ongoing. So if, yeah. if people are looking, uh, yeah, go online. Thanks. So Curate and BL, ah, Black Lives Matter Houston, Texas. Yeah. I couldn't say the acronym as quickly as you could. It wasn't coming out well. <laughs> yeah, and for sure, Faye Esperanza is doing work around um, helping the community that you engage with. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I would like us to see the Faye Esperanza part of the body. Mm-hmm. I, I, I have to be honest that when, when we think in Faye Esperanza, just the fact that you, you will say Faye Esperanza make us think that that's something part out of the body, out of the community. Mm-hmm. Faye Esperanza is part of St. Paul's. Yes. Yeah. So once you, when you support St. Paul's, you support Faye Esperanza, you support uh, 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 the LGBTQ communities, you support all many other communities. Uh, so yes, uh, uh, Faye Esperanza, part of St. Paul's. I'm glad you it. rephrased that. Thank you. Yeah. It's part of the body. Yes. That's the autonomous and embedded piece of, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Any last things you guys want to say or share or ask and impart wisdom upon? <laughs> well, I'm very, very grateful to both of you for being willing to come and talk to us. But I'm grateful to you for having the idea to do this. I'm grateful to you. Yeah. Um, you know I love y'all. <laughs> so thanks uh, for being here and joining us and being able to come in person. I think we could have figured out the Zoom, but this was kind of nice. And we didn't hug, and we're sitting far enough apart, <laughs> but it's lovely to be And here. I want to I say to people that next Sunday, Holly has persuaded me. Uh-uh, this was your idea. No. <laughs> I guess it was my idea. Never I think mind. You, um, I'm going to blame you. Okay. It's going to go well. We're going to show up and have a conversation with each other. Without notes. Forget it. We're not doing notes. I'm bringing something. Oh, okay. You know what I'm going to bring? Your T-shirt. Oh, I'm bringing my T-shirt, but I'm, I'm how about a magic trick? Oh, yep. A well, video, a video, too. a magic trick on video. I will not spoil the trick. Well, you're the technical consultant on this. That's right. On this trick. <laughs> so yeah. we're going to be uh, Bill and Holly on the hot seat next Sunday, and. Um, so if there's questions you want to make sure I ask Bill, just email me. <laughs> And vice versa. And one more time. So you're going to do the summary of this that will go out on Tuesday. But the auction goes live today. Tomorrow. uh, Tomorrow. Tomorrow. And I will send an additional directions on how to participate in that if you wish to. You do that tomorrow? I'll do it today. Today? Yeah. That'd be great. Okay. Because I want to ask a question about how how you do that, how you get that technical stuff. Relying on Richard too. So thank you. Yeah. 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 So 
I hope your experience of live stream worked well today. We don't, we're doing everything at our end to make sure that it's a positive experience. But as I keep saying, um, there are just so many people on the internet at this time that it's just hard to get everybody on. So I hope that works well for you. It's hard also to feel gathered when we can't gather, but I'm glad that we can connect like this. And uh, remember, no matter where you go, no matter what happens this week, watch your step because you carry precious cargo. Holly and I'll see you here next Sunday. Bye. Thanks, y'all.